over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Today on the broadcast, back in the big book study, I am delighted to have a friend, a co-laborer in the vineyard. We were both at the Moody Bible Institute for a period of time, Dr. Kevin Zuber. Dr. Zuber is now at the Master's Seminary. He has spent more than 20 years of pastoral and teaching experience before he moved out there for 17 years. He served as professor of theology at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He also pastored local churches in Iowa and Indiana. He earned his MDiv and THM from Grace Theological Seminary and his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. At the Master's Seminary, he teaches systematic theology, Bible exposition, and he is the chief academics officer, also teaching Advanced Apologetics, Contemporary Evangelism, and the Life of Christ. And he's writing a book that maybe we'll get a chance to chat about a little bit. But uh, Kevin, thanks for joining us on the broadcast. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be talking with you again. Well, I wanted to get your expertise on the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, we've got four unique Gospels. We call them the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the outlier John. Mark, perhaps the oldest of the accounts, Matthew focusing in on the kingdom. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start about the genealogy. Give us Dr. Zuber's thumbnail of this genealogy that is hotly contested as either proving the lineage of Christ or creating big doubt. Well, I think that most who take the genealogy seriously, and I do, would suggest that what we've got here is the theological version Not inaccurate at any point, I don't think. I don't think there's anybody that would say that any of this was invented. I guess maybe some liberals or form critics or something like that. But I think what we've got here is something that Matthew is giving to us in order to, you know, bring out one of his themes, and that is the connection to the Messiah and the promises that God had made to national Israel, particularly through Abraham and David. Abraham and David are really the focus of these genealogies, and the connection that's being made here is is that the one that is the subject of this gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is related both in terms of the physical inheritance, as the genealogy, I think, is of real people and a real lineage, but it's designed in order to say that he is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and to David. This is really kind of a different tact of how Luke approaches that same point. Luke brings out through the Magnificat of Mary and through the song of Zechariah, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, that this one that's going to be born is connected to these covenantal promises to national Israel. And so I think that's really the main theme. Matthew does it this way, I think, because 
in the intertestamental, what they call the Second Temple Judaistic period, genealogies were huge. Obviously, after the exile, mm-hmm. you know, proving your lineage is kind of important so that you can go back to the land and claim some things. Paul did that, Philippians 3. But Matthew does this, again, in a kind of a shorthand genealogical way. His readers, mostly, I think, are Jewish. They would have understood what he's doing there. So the kinds of questions we like to ask, I guess, are not illegitimate. But this is part of the problem with some hermeneutics is asking questions of the text that it was never really intended to answer. And I think his first readers would have gotten the point, okay? They wouldn't have stopped to sort of analyze these. Context is king, baby. They understood the context. Now, you quickly mentioned intertestamental period. Give us the 25-word, you know, what's the paragraph readers need to understand when we say this intertestamental period between the closing of the old and the opening of the new? Two things need to be understood, and there I could put it into two words, continuity and discontinuity. The continuity that lasted through that period after the end of the exile, during the era of Ezra and Zerubbabel, and then a little later Nehemiah, when they all went back to, not all, but when they went back to Jerusalem, there was continuity in that they carried back with them the Old Testament scriptures and what they taught straight up and the promises that had been made. And they saw themselves as picking up that storyline. The discontinuity is, is that, of course, some other history enters in there, and that would be the era of the Maccabees in the history of the dynasties, the Hasmoneans and others. And then the sort of general historical progress, historical elements there, Alexander the Great and after him. So there were some changes. I mean, some developments that started to turn things in a different direction than what the Old Testament storyline intended or what it was pointing towards. Those are the tensions that show up then in the New Testament, right? Because you've got the people that in the New Testament gospel writers are trying to sort of re-pick up that continuity part. And they're dealing with some people that introduce some discontinuity, things that were different from the direction that the Old Testament was indicating. And that, of course, would have been the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'll talk a little bit, not spend too much time on the birth narrative, because we do have, and I appreciate you highlighting, we begin with Abraham, the Messianic lion, David, which, you know, again, for the Jew, this made beautiful sense. And I think back to hermeneutic you mentioned a moment ago, I'm always harping on, you've got to understand the Abrahamic covenant. (laughs) When you don't, all bets are off, and you've got to understand David was the first king, not Saul, technically speaking. He was God's choice. And so that Davidic promise that there'll always be a messianic king on the throne, and you got to love Matthew's beginning, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, no doubt there, the son of David, messianic, the son of Abraham. So to me, that's the part that gives me chills is the way we've compressed, you know, all this Old Testament history into about 12 Greek words. Yeah. I mean, again, you nailed it. His readers are going to go, yeah, yeah, I know. I know that. Exactly. We're caught up. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And so we've got some unique information in Matthew's gospel of the birth narrative. Rather than me cherry pick, when you think of, you know, what we're told in this conception passage, what stands out to you, Kevin, is, okay, that's the big takeaway for readers and Bible students to know. I think, again, this would be somewhat also with Luke, but clearly here in Matthew, and that is right out of the beginning, right out of the gate, so to speak. Matthew is laboring with something, again, and it's this discontinuity element again. 
something's going to be new. I mean, the point is, is that when the Messiah is born, he is the Messiah, and he's coming to fulfill those covenantal promises we were just talking about. But it's not going to be exactly as they were expecting. There are going to be some things that they weren't expecting. And just let me cut to the chase here. It goes beyond the birth narratives. It's really setting it up here, but moves on. And that is that he is the Messiah, and he's going to come and do the things that the Messiah was expected to mm -hmm. do and see those in the Old Testament. But he's not going to do some of the things that the Messiah was expected to do. In other words, he's coming in order to bring in, to establish the messianic realities of what the kingdom will actually provide in full, but he's going to do something first. The way I describe it to my students is we start with reading the scriptures, the gospel records. We know there are going to be two comings. We already know that. The gospel writers are going to labor the point that there are two comings, not in quite so many words, but that's what Matthew's doing. Again, Luke is doing it to the same way. In other words, that he is the Messiah. He's coming, and if you look carefully, he's fulfilling the Old Testament covenantal promises. In part, he's going to fulfill them totally when he comes to actually set up the kingdom. But again, those are the things that are, for us, a given. We know that there are two comings. They have to learn that there are two comings. And so back to the promise of Emmanuel coming, that's very much the Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 through 12. This is where we see him the Messiah being born, Isaiah 7, 14, we see him, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Mm -hmm. The key parts of what Isaiah was looking for, what a lot of the prophets were looking for, are going to be fulfilled in the second coming. Yep. So what Matthew does is, in the way that he presents the birth of Christ here, he starts to help us see, well, this is the fulfillment of that promise. But then he immediately moves into the story of his, you know, the visit of the Magi, who they're coming to see. They're coming to see the king, but he's not the king that they would have expected yet. And Matthew goes on to say, this is fulfillment. This is fulfillment. You see this especially in chapter 2. starts here with Isaiah 7.14, but it moves right through Micah 5.2, and it moves through the other passages, saying he is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment. It's natural to us. It seems so right to us. Of course, he was the baby. He was born in Bethlehem. He's in a manger. It seems right, even though a manger is a feeding trough for animals, but it still seems right to us. It all seems so right. But Matthew's readers are going, you know, they want to know, well, why should we believe in him? Because there's so much that we don't think sounds right. It's really not right. But then Matthew's trying to say, no, it is right. He's the fulfillment of these promises. They may not be the promises or they may not be the passages in the Old Testament, if you will. They would have sort of said, yeah, that's messianic fulfillment. It strikes me, Kevin, when we talk about this, the Jew of the Old Testament lived with the hope of a promise that they knew was going to come at some future time. But by the New Testament, they can't maintain that same viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Am I making sense? Yeah. You know, they live with this longevity of, you know, Messiah would come. And yet when mm -hmm. the New Testament, and that's why I asked you about the intertestamental period, because you wonder how the pious, God-fearing, believing Jew that knew a Messiah would come anticipating this, and now he's on the scene. And it's like, well, can't you suspend the way you did in Moses' time, the way you did during the Davidic kingdom, the divided monarchy? You, you always knew it was going to happen. And mm -hmm. now that he's on the scene, can't you know, I think it was 
John Hanna, I'm not sure, who drew two mountains and like one was, let's say, you know, 10,000 feet and one was like 14,000 feet. And from the ground, you're looking across the 10,000 foot to the 14,000 and you don't see that between there, there's an enormous valley. Right. And he yeah, said, that's, they, I've drawn that illustration many times. Yeah, on the There was Jesus on the top of that higher peak. But when John the Baptist got to the top, he went, whoa, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> are you the yeah. Christ? Wait a minute. You know, and again, I know it's speculative and I hate to ask the test. I agree with you. I hate to ask the test questions. It doesn't answer. But I wonder how that pious, God-fearing, believing Jew, when they heard of this, you know, magi, and that moves me to the next question. I'm a little sorry for the diversion there. But why do you think Matthew recorded, or maybe better yet, what was the hearer to understand about the record of the flight to Egypt and the slaughter of children and Rachel weeping for her children? Give us some insight on that. Well, again, it goes to what we were just talking about. What were they expecting? Whenever I, you know, I try to get people to, you know, my students or when I'm preaching from Matthew, I try to get them to understand these people had expectations. By the way, whenever I do premarital counseling, I always land on expectations pretty strongly because we all have expectations, but we usually don't know what those expectations are until they are not met. Okay. It's only when our expectations are not met that we start to say, hey, there's a problem there. The messianic expectations of that pious Jew you were talking about were all of those promises, all of the promises that you just mentioned, you know, from both peaks, you know, the different things. But Jesus was coming to fulfill not all of them, but certain ones of them. In fact, ones that they probably weren't as interested in, again, from the intertestamental period, and because Rome was dominating them, they were more interested in the kingdom promises. The politics, and, yeah. mm-hmm. and they wanted to see that. So when Matthew's presenting Jesus, he's trying hard to say, look, he really is the Messiah. Look, I'm going to demonstrate it to you. But you've got to suspend your expectations and mm-hmm. listen carefully. Matthew starts right at the gate, I said, to separate those two peaks, to say, this is fulfilled. He's coming. He is the Messiah. Look what he's doing and look what he's going to do. He's going to heal. He's going to teach. This is exactly what we should have expected the Messiah to come and do, because there's many, many passages that speak to that, that that prophesy of that. That's what these first narratives are designed to Mm do. We are familiar with them. I mean, who doesn't know Micah 5 too? Bethlehem, Ephrath, though there are least in the leaders mm-hmm. in, in Judah. We know those. We know those texts really well. Why? Because we go to Christmas plays and we've seen them recited many, many times. We see that. The text that the pious Jew you're talking about, Matthew's readers, so Matthew's kind of an apologetic here, is to say, look, you've got to get past the text you're familiar with the ones that they kept looking at, the ones that they would be the most familiar with. Again, would be the text that talk about the return of the king and things like that. So again, Matthew is trying to set us up here with these many you know, references. This is a rich text for the New Testament's use of the Old Testament here too, by the way. Mm-hmm. There are just so many of these Old Testament quotations, Messianic fulfillment. But we have to put ourselves in the position of those people that would not be unfamiliar, some continuity, but would not be as familiar because of that discontinuity with what the the pious Jew would be expecting Mm -hmm. concerning the coming of the Messiah. So he's laboring some things here again. And what happens when somebody labors a point that you already know, 
is that you begin to look for other. He must mean something deeper. <laughs> and uh, that's when you start seeing things here that aren't actually in the text. And you start seeing a lot of Jesus is overthrowing the Old Testament covenantal system or things like that. This is where a lot of quote-unquote scholarship is like, what? Did they say that? I don't see that. Right, but the, right. It's because they're missing the obvious that's too obvious to us. I uh, often use Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17 to talk about a theology of baptism because you and I have both been around a wide array of things that are said when people are baptized, whether it's infant baptism, adult baptism, second baptism, you know, a recommitment baptism. And I love this passage, you know, a little anxious asking Dr. Zuber if I'm right here, but baptism is such a remarkable thing here because it's about identification, not mode. And we read in 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water the heavens were open, the Spirit of God descended as a dove, and I often make a overstatement there, it wasn't a dove, it was descending like a dove, lightning on him, and then a voice comes out, my beloved Son, in whom I will please. So we have a Trinitarian doctrine, we have an identification from God the Father, this is my Son, and this transitions, which we won't talk about, John's baptism, which is a different subject. And what's happening here, again, help me out if I'm wrong, is that this now draws the new line of if you're identified with Christ, this is what you're doing by what we call believer's baptism today. I think you nailed it. I mean, baptism here is the identification, (laughs) you know, you're identifying. And, you know, I've preached this a number of times. I get questions from students, and it's not unrelated, you know, it's John's baptism. You know, why did John wanted to prevent him. Well, because John thought, well, you don't need the baptism of repentance. Right. But John's own baptism was more than just the baptism. of It was a baptism of identification. Those who came because John was the forerunner, they wanted to identify with the messianic community, whatever loosely that meant to John's John's. Wasn't that the moral call of the Jew that wasn't living so well? And, you know, he's saying, look, Messiah's coming. I tell people sort of, get your act together, you know, he's coming. And they were well familiar with the mikvah. They were well familiar with going up to Passover. They understood this ritual cleansing. And that to me seems to be one of the differences between the baptism of repentance, calling the Jew out, as Mm -hmm. where now Jesus is specifically being identified not by John, but by the voice from heaven. This is my son. Yeah, yeah. And that's, again, you stated it very well. I'm glad. Okay. (laughs) What Matthew's trying to do here, what Matthew does here, and again, you have to sort of see this, the culmination of this, very emphatic. This is my beloved son, Mm -hmm. whom I am well pleased. Wow. That's going to take, again, Matthew's readers right back to Psalm 2 and mentioning it about the son. And then if you trace that through, I don't want to get too far ahead of where you want to take this, but I mean, that's a theme that is subtle but strong. I mean, subtle but you know important in Matthew's gospel because you see this sort of couple of culminations. One is at Caesarea Philippi, mm. where Jesus asks the disciples, "Who do men say that I am?" And thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Of course, this baptism is almost you know recapitulated in a sense in the Transfiguration because then you've got the same sort of identification. But there's one of the keys. Matthew trying to bring out something that they, again, the pious believing Jew, 
may or may not have understood. We say, well, they should have understood it, that he's going to be the son of God. But Matthew's bringing this out right here, you know, very clearly, that there's one of the things that goes beyond their expectation. They were expecting the Messiah, the son of David, and he's clearly identified, again, as the son of David a couple of different times in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. But he's more than that. He is the beloved son. He's the- well, yeah, well, and then, of course, I'm going to jump over the temptation account. I hate to say that. But that's Satan's comment. If you are the son, if you are the son, you know, challenging what has just been, you know, declared from the heavens, this is my son. So, you know, the let- gospel writers love to put the truth into the mouth of the most, you know, unsuspecting people. I mean, you know, and <laughs> you know, it's out of Satan's mouth, you know, or other people. They speak better than they know. Herod does that later on. But, yeah. uh, but this and, is very much, Matthew wants us to sort of, you know, he wants his readers to sort of recalibrate. Look, you're looking for the Messiah. Very important. You know, the Messiah was supposed to be a son. Let me tell you, okay, this is more than even what you're thinking. And he demonstrates it through the events of his life. This is going to just be reiterated again and again. And the temptation was one of those. Yeah. Let's go to chapters five, six, seven, and eight, the so-called Beatitudes and this whole pericope within the larger story, because this is a, it's complex, but it's also beautiful. Mm-hmm. So give us sort of the Dr. Zuber cliff notes on how one approaches the Sermon on the Mount and what he's talking about, particularly when he's talking about practicing righteousness, which I think is a important hinge of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, again, sort of first tie into what we were just talking about. Why does Matthew have so many of these discourses like the Sermon on the Mount? Why does he include that? Because again, I think it's he's proving to his readers that this one that is Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. And here's one of the ways because he's going to come and he's going to teach. Now, again, these are Jewish people. They're very interested in the teaching. They're thinkers. They, you know, they want to see the miracles and things, but they want to understand. And it's very important that Matthew's readers understand that his teaching was, and, and the culmination of that is, of course, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when the people were amazed because he taught as having authority. authority not yeah, the scribes. Yeah. And so, hey, this Messiah is truly the Messiah because he's even more than that. And his teaching is part of the proof. As much as in some of the other Gospels, his miracles, and Matthew doesn't deny this or forget this, but for Matthew, it's his teaching that is essentially the proof of his deity. Then when he's teaching these things, again, he doesn't really, sometimes it's been said, well, you know, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. This goes back again. Oh, he's turning the heat up. He's picking up the continuity part mm-hmm. and contrary to the discontinuity part. He's saying, let me straighten this out for you. And, right, he elevates it even further as only he could to sort of make sure it gets back to, again, the original intention. And the righteousness that he's talking about here, I guess this is where I'm a systematic theologian and not a New Testament guy, because this is where some of that divide comes in. But the righteousness that he's talking about there, some have taken this to say, well, this is to prove that we could never have that kind of righteousness, and so give up trying to keep the law. Some old dispensationalist used to say, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount's not for us because, you know, it's about the law and we just can't keep that. And the, no, I, everything that's in the Sermon on the Mount's recapitulated somewhere in the epistles. So mm-hmm. it is for us. What is this righteousness that we need? It is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a righteousness that we need. 
But the key is the Beatitudes. I mean, the Beatitudes get us into that. You know, first we, you know, we're poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin. We hunger and thirst for this righteousness. And it says, they shall be satisfied. And what does that mean? Well, it means that I know that I will experience that righteousness now in part. Now, you know, I'm not what I was. I've seen that, but it's not my righteousness. It's Christ who lives in me. Well, that's, yeah, that to me is the haymaker is when he says in 520, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And kingdom, of course, is a big subject we may get to. But to me, and again, correct me, the way I've embraced this section, this large section of righteousness, how do you practice righteousness? When you give, when you pray, you do these things not for show, you do them in secret, and that was pious too, right? But it was, you have to do this in Christ, is the bottom line. You cannot be righteous doing everything right. You've got to be in Christ in order to be righteous before God. Yes, no? Oh, exactly. And that, you know, I agree wholeheartedly. And this is the point again where I see no discontinuity between Jesus and mm-hmm. Paul, like some of the New Testament, you know, scholars do. Well, there was some, no. The righteousness that he's describing here is a righteousness, and as you said, it's in Christ. This is a righteousness in him. Now, again, do I pray as I should? Heaven knows that's not the case. Do I fast or do I give? Am I constantly without worry or anxiety as I should be? Not so much. Not so much. Right. Yeah, right. (laughs) All of that. All of that is to say, again, I think it's not an unattainable goal. It is. We have to be careful, and we don't view the law as a code to live by, that we try and fail, and then it's only a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, mm-hmm. to use Paul's mm-hmm. word. But I like to say people, look, the Beatitudes are like a barometer, spiritually speaking. Like the fruit of the Spirit is a barometer, spiritually speaking. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, gentleness, all the time? Am I always, you know, blessed in these ways all the time? No. But when my walk with Christ is what it ought to be, when I'm living in Christ as I ought to, I look at my life and I see these things. I see the things in the Beatitudes, or I see myself following, you know, the way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not doing it. Christ is doing it. And so it's sort of like, I don't try to do these things, but I try to live in Christ. I try to walk in Christ. I try to walk by the Spirit. And then I check myself against these sort of things. And I say, yeah, Christ's living in me. And I need to keep walking. I need to keep living that way. So it's there, not as a code to try and live by and then fail, but it's a demonstration of the righteousness. The law itself, I mean, because this is what this sermon goes back again and again. Uh, He talks about not committing adultery or not murdering, obviously, the Ten Commandments. Look, the law was never meant to be a way to get into right relationship with God. The law was given to people who are already in a right relationship with God. And this is, he said, this is how you ought to live to enjoy this relationship with me. The law, as Millard Erickson says in his systematic theology, is something of a transcript of the nature of God. Hmm. This is what we're trying to live up to. So it's not something that I have to try and a code that I try to live by in my own strength, but it's, again, a guide for me and understanding for me that this is how I enjoy my life with God. This is how I enjoy it. I enjoy my life with God by walking in this way. 
and living according to these principles. And we tie, I mean, David's love for the law to Paul's love for the law. He did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. But again, I think intrinsically, and you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, so there's a very, you know, the Armenian influence of, you know, do the right thing when you need to, and when you don't do the right thing, do more of the right thing so that you can compensate in this ever, you know, possible set of scales. And it just seems so overwrought when you give, when you pray. And I love the fact that prayer is where he lands, and then we go into the so-called Lord's Prayer, which really should be the disciples' prayer, right? But when you pray, when so the expectation is, no, you do it. Don't do it this way, which would be legalism or trying to get approval by the law or for pretense or appearance, when you do it like this. So it's very practical in these. I forget the author years ago, he took quite a bit of fire, but he made the comment that, you know, if you follow what Jesus did simply because he felt it was important to do, that's not a waste of time. You know? yeah, right, yeah. So if he's praying, if he's fasting, if he's getting away, I mean, the fact that Jesus did those things, don't overwork it. There's probably some benefit into, you know. Anyway, we must move because there's much more to get to. Kevin, when you look at this in a broad picture, we want to talk about people groups or emphasis that Christ has and Matthew's trying to capture. How do you see that playing out as we read the gospel? Well, again, the Sermon on the Mount is a part of Jesus' interaction with one of the groups, which is his disciples, obviously. It's actually for his disciples. And Matthew cycles through, again, in his interactions with the disciples and the other groups I'll mention in a moment, to talk about the disciples. The disciples, Matthew portrays them as kind of a dawning awareness of who Jesus really is as the Messiah. We even got ahead of ourselves. We talked about interaction at Caesarea Philippi. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Mm. It's Peter who speaks up, really speaking for the whole group. And he's constant. And, you know, two steps forward, one steps back with these guys because, you know, he gives them the transfiguration. And then the next thing, you know, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is always doing face palm with these guys, you know. <laughs> oh, geez, you know, what's going on? Hey, uh, but we'd be I, the same way. Come on. <laughs> oh, exactly. Well, that's my point. That's my point, Michael, because we would be exactly the same way. Is Matthew's readers would identify with that as we should all the way through. To both, again, encourage us in, not encourage us in our failures, but to encourage us in that the way that they overcame, this is Matthew's point, the way they overcame their inconsistency, the disciples overcame it, at the end, they got it. That's how I usually teach this when I teach Matthew or the life of Christ. Who gets it and who doesn't? Eventually, the disciples get it. They don't get it all at once. They get it, you know, in part, and then they kind of grow, and then they have to grow in some other sort of things. But eventually, they get it. The crowds, on the other hand, they don't get it. Although the crowds are interesting, one of the things you'll hear some people say sometimes is you got to say the crowd that, you know, cried out, crucify, crucify, is not the same crowd that was saying a week earlier, Hosanna. Mm. Okay, I understand that. I How understand do we know, though? Yeah. There. But for Matthew, the crowds are like one group, whether it's, you know, the changing group, the ones that were fed mm -hmm. and the, the 5,000. That's the same group. The crowds never get it. Why? because they're always looking out for themselves. Mm. One way to miss Jesus is what can he do for me? Or, you know, that's the crowds. How can I sort of tap into this movement or something like that? The crowds don't get it. The third group is his opposition. 
And the opposition becomes the opposition, not because they can best him in their understanding of scripture. Obviously, Matthew demonstrates, no, they can't. But the opposition doesn't get it because Jesus threatens their power. Jesus threatens their position. And what was that position? Well, ironically, the Sadducees, Pharisees, they had made such a pact with Rome that they themselves precluded the entrance of the kingdom. You know, that they had gotten so comfortable with the status quo that they opposed what Jesus was actually all about in order to make sure. And that's the religious establishment, right? I mean, you know, they sometimes, you know, feel like sort of have to preserve what we've got regardless of what Jesus, you know, might say about it. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do in order to get Jesus, in order to get it, Matthew is saying to his readers, is that you have to live in constant expectation. And this comes around to the notion of kingdom. You have to be in constant expectation of the kingdom as it's revealed in the Old Testament. And don't try to reinterpret your present circumstances as the kingdom. You might be like the Pharisees on the outs with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And don't be looking to do like the crowds did, just looking to what can Jesus do for me or what can I get out of this? Because then you'll miss something that's even more important, and that's the salvation that he has come to bring. In the end, the group that gets it, the small group that gets it, are the group that were willing to sort of give up their, whatever their expectations were, recognize their own, you know, foibles and recognize how many times they didn't understand mm-hmm. Jesus. And what turns it around in the very end, obviously, is the resurrection, which is absolutely something that, again, in terms of expectations. No we, one we saw it coming. Out, yep. No, we could point out that there were a few people, Abraham thought that maybe Isaac was going mm-hmm. to be raised, David, as the other yeah. Hebrew says. But in terms of the Messiah dying, of course, we've got Isaiah 53. We say, well, how could they miss that? Mm-hmm. Well, because one of the servants homes, and there was a lot of other Isaiah to focus on. But that's what finally turns it around completely and completes this, okay, overturns their expectations and demonstrates that, yeah, without doubt, now we know there's a second coming at the institution of the Lord's table. I will drink this new with you in my Father's kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that the whole sort of program of, you know, living like the kingdom is here now, but anticipating the actual coming of the kingdom is where you're left at the end of Matthew. Right. And that's okay. what we want to see. I got to get you to help us with some terminology. Son of man and kingdom, particularly the way Matthew uses them. And again, from my recollection and study, son of man is Christ seemingly his preferred self-identification, the way he likes to talk about himself. Right. And by the time we get to 17, the transfiguration has occurred, and we now see this repetitive heightened son of man, son of man, son of man, and kingdom. Yeah. So help us understand what does he mean when he says son of man, and what did both they understand with kingdom, and why is Christ emphasizing that to this audience at that time? Okay, so the son of man... Jesus uses this as his preferred self-identification, and undeniably, there's an emphasis of his humanity there. It's there, but I don't think Matthew is as interested in articulating aspects of the hypostatic union, nor was Jesus at this particular point. You know, his genuine humanity was there for everybody to see. I mean, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired. I mean, you know, so he identifies himself as the son of man. I don't think Jesus is trying to remind everybody that he's got a human nature. That would have been obvious. He's trying to do something again with a text from the Old Testament, Daniel 
chapter seven. You know, the son of man is messianic. And so he's making a messianic claim there and in a messianic claim. And again, in a text that I guess relatively we should know better, I guess maybe we don't as well as we should, but certainly wouldn't be as prominent to Matthew's readers as other messianic texts would be. So the son of man is the Messiah and he's saying, I am the Messiah. But again, in the context where the Son of Man identifies himself as the Son of Man, we don't see it as subtly as Matthew and Jesus mean for us to see it, is that it's a text where, again, the messianic identification is something that is maybe wouldn't have been picked up on by the action at the time, if that all makes sense. Do you think he, the scribes and Pharisees made that connection? That's kind of my question. Because when he says Son of Man, if he's self-identifying as Messiah— I mean, obviously they had invented reasons as well as, you know, real reasons to be mad at him because he's turning over their apple cart. But, you know, the closest we get is before Pilate when he says, you know, as you say, which is a very complicated Greek phrase. You wish he would have said, yeah, Messiah. (laughs) But be that as it may, the fact that Matthew goes from son of man to rank in the kingdom, 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 it just strikes me like this was a connect the dots. Yeah, right. Very quickly, the very complicated phrase that you referenced there to Pilate isn't quite so complicated if you render it into Latin. Now, that may be a stretch. Well, help me out. I'm always willing to learn. (laughs) Pilate Pilate would have known Latin. And so maybe with it, Jesus, you know, I don't know if he quoted it in Latin. I sort of, you know, I don't know. It's very speculative there. But I mean, it's clear if you put it into Pilate's ears, if you will. He's uh, saying he is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, he's very clear there. No, the Pharisees did not know what he meant by the Son of Man, but that's the point. Matthew's readers would have. It's like these guys, how can they be how so can dead? They miss it? Yeah, they got a flat you know, forehead. It's so yeah. clear. We're getting it. Matthew has set it up so that the readers get it almost every time. It's like an inside joke, if you will, or an inside theological point. So that, yeah, it's over and over again. Because again, Matthew's writing to them to say, look, he is the Messiah. Matthew's readers might ask, why should we believe that he's the Messiah if the leaders rejected him? And Matthew has gone through all of this to say, look why they rejected him. They're thick. (laughs) They're -hmm. they're not good guys. I mean, you know, don't put your trust in them. You know, understand that you've got better insight than they do. And the kingdom, again, the kingdom, here's where some of our friends will say, well, the kingdom is spiritual, you know. Mm -hmm. So he's not, Mm -hmm. you know, the kingdom is not of this world. So he's subverting all of that. No. He's made it clear that the kingdom, he's doing kingdom-like things. You know, an old author you probably would appreciate, Michael J. Dwight Pentecost. Big book, a lot of stuff describing the kingdom. I have pages out of that when I make this point. I say, look at all the kind of things the kingdom was promising. Look at what Jesus did. Mm. He was doing kingdom things before the arrival of the kingdom. He was doing them to prove that he was the Messiah Obviously. Okay, so help, hang on, hang on. Help our listeners understand this, because you and I make some assumptions here. When he's talking about kingdom and he's doing kingdom things, and I have to be about my father's business, which is kingdom oriented, give us a simple definition. And then more importantly for my question, how does a believer today, because we used to have these, you know, how these trends come and go, or kingdom people, or kingdom people. I used to get so frustrated when I hear preachers use that term and not explain it. Mm -hmm. So give us a short definition on what Christ means by kingdom and his kingdom work, and then jump with me to how do we as 22nd century almost people understand this kingdom of God theology today? 
again, what we've seen a number of times here is with Jesus was going back and picking up on the continuity that goes back to the Old Testament, right back to the very beginning where we started with the genealogy. What was Matthew telling us Jesus was announcing? He's announcing the kingdom. Everybody should have been expecting the Davidic kingdom. I mean, literal kingdom on this planet, Jesus, you know, greater son of David sitting on the throne. That's it. However, when that kingdom comes, when that kingdom is actually here physically on the earth, the conditions of the kingdom, the kinds of life that will happen in the kingdom, more particularly, the kind of life that those who are in that kingdom, because they're in Christ at the same time, are going to be living, the kind of life they're going to be living, the kinds of conditions that you should expect, the kinds of things. What will the Messiah be doing in that kingdom? You know what he's going to be doing? He's going to be making sure everybody's fed. He's going to make sure everybody's healthy. He's going to be making sure his enemies don't get a chance to get going at all. The ideal kingdom, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. You know, it's going to be a time of earthly blessing and Again, the very kind of things that the crowds were craving for themselves, but not for the Messiah, the good life, all of that. Now, the actual physical kingdom awaits Christ's second coming, but he does the kinds of things that, again, we're going to expect him to do in the millennium. He's going to bring it. To simplify this, the Old Testament, you're thinking of those two mountain peaks again. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament was looking for him to come and bring in the kingdom and then bring in kingdom blessings in that order. Makes sense, right? You bring in the kingdom, you bring in kingdom blessings. Those kingdom blessings are a life of righteousness and a life lived in devotion to God. Most of all, the kingdom blessings included salvation, and that would be a bigger topic. But what Jesus does is inverts that. He first brings in, for those will be in him, the blessings of the kingdom. That is not physical sorts of things, but spiritually, he's going to bring in the kinds of things like walking with him, enjoying this life, as we said, join walking in that righteousness, just what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about, living as if we are kingdom citizens now is what Christians ought to be doing, living as if Jesus has brought in the kingdom. We're little outliers of what the kingdom is going to be like when it gets here. Not perfectly, as we've already said, but that's the point. So he inverts, there's two comings, he inverts them, brings in the new life, gives that to us. We live that sort of kingdom life. I've often told people, look, when we are living in the kingdom, we should say to ourselves, you know, this was kind of like it was when we were living back there, apart from all the unbelievers we had to live with and all of, hmm. <laughs> all of our sin. So we ought to be living as if we are kingdom citizens, as if the kingdom were here, even though we know it's going to come. And all that means, again, is living the life that he enables us by the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit and things, living the intention of the law, even if we can't live it perfectly. That's what it is to live in the kingdom. I'm a citizen of heaven. Paul says this in mm -hmm. Philippians 3, right? I'm a citizen of heaven. Let's get real practical. Okay, you and I, we're on the same page. The average man or woman who loves Jesus, they read their Bible regularly. They might be in a BSF or precept or community Bible study, or, you know, they want to grow in 
Dr. Zuber, you're teaching on the kingdom of God and now not yet language and so forth and so on. How do you help them understand that we are now part of a kingdom and I need to live not legalistically, not to check a box, but how am I living as a kingdom person real practically? Read the Gospels and uh, <laughs> listen carefully to what Jesus is telling you, uh, the teaching again, you know, from the teachings in Matthew. Reorient your priorities. Again, I'm not just railing against materialism here or, you know, Western, you know, first world, you know. Sort well, of it is our bane. You know, I mean, I tell people often, I think we're prosperity theologians. We just don't want to admit it. I call it if-then theology. If I live well, God's going to bless me. If I save my money, if I love my wife, if I train my kids to follow Jesus, then theoretically it should work out. And if it doesn't, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. we just have milder versions of the prosperity. <laughs> yeah. We have a low-grade yeah. fever. Right. All, we, all right, let's jump to the end because your time is precious and we got to give our listeners a little bit of breath because this has been great. The last part of this gospel is perhaps the most known, or I would say arguably one of the more confused and uh, misinterpreted, but we call it the so-called Great Commission, or as Howard Hendricks would say, the Great Omission. So we've got, you know, this delicious passage, 11 disciples, you know, Judas is gone. They go to Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. And they saw him, they worshiped, but some were doubtful. I love that phrase. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then we know the grammar, make disciples as you go of all the ethnos, baptizing, which I find wonderful because we begin with the baptism, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Give us Dr. Zuber's systematic synthesis on this great commission. The baptizing, I agree with you. That's Think of what I've said earlier about the emphasis in Matthew's gospel on Jesus' teaching teaching them to observe all that I commanded mm -hmm, you. Mm -hmm. The key to understanding what Matthew is driving at for his readers and for us and living in the kingdom and many of the things we've been talked about is the teaching, the teaching. That may be because I'm a teacher. <laughs> you know, yeah, I love to teach. That's my giftedness. That's my calling. But I think that's the emphasis, teaching them about Jesus, but even teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, to understand and then to live out all of these kinds of things. What's the ultimate objective? The ultimate objective is, you know, I want to die and be with Christ. I want to be in heaven. What do I have to do in the meantime? Sit around, wait, you know, play pinochle, whatever. No, I have to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have to be constantly, as we were just saying, reorienting myself mm -hmm. to this truth of who Christ is and what that isness means for my life. I have to constantly, the world's pulling me against that all of the time. And I have to be pulling that direction all of the time. So from my standpoint, the major point here is that we need to just teach, teach, teach. We have this idea that all we need to do is get people saved and then just stick them in the pew and teach them, you know, new hymns. Discipleship is the missing element of the evangelical church, in my opinion, and has been for a long time. We got great schools of learning. We also have an embarrassment of riches of online resources, podcasts, and things like this. 
and we just have had people live in it. Matthew ends on, you have to take what I've given you and keep passing that on, which isn't just, you know, four laws or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where I think we need to sort of redouble our efforts in that. You talked about teaching, and I think it's, um, this is really straining my memory, Ringsdorf, I think, wrote the Kittle article on teaching, Didaske, Didaskein, all the iterations of teaching. And he makes a, I used to have it memorized, he makes a comment that when you look at Christ's life, the preponderance of what he did, it's inseparable from this word, teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I call him the always intentional, always deliberate, never, oh, by the way, Jesus. You know, <laughs> he wasn't like, oh, hey, let's go over here today. I mean, always intentional, always deliberate, never, oh, by the way. And every opportunity, I mean, from scribbling in the dirt to, you know, comments, walking on the water, giving instructions, commands, pray. And I often talk about, you talk about the groups. I say we have the privilege of being people who look at history with our hand over our ear. And we understand Caesarea Philippi now. We understand these proclamations that they didn't quite get at the time. And that's the exciting part of it. But I love your emphasis on teaching because I think often we think about the making disciples or the going. You and I have heard countless sermons about go, go, go. Well, that's not the language. The language is make disciples. And that's a follower of Christ. How do you do that? You got to teach them. Got to explain it to them, you know. And it's not necessarily being a seminary professor like you. It's, you know, a mom teaching her kids to love Jesus. It's a, a dad teaching his son, you know, and when he's fishing, that this is God's creation and we need to serve God, not simply ourselves. And, you know, all the different manifestations of how we as followers of Christ can share with others. One of the questions I love to ask when we're with people, and I sometimes I'm better than others, but, you know, you can talk about the latest movie or book, which is great, but what's Christ teaching you right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating question because people will always answer. Yeah, a good test of this is, you know, if I'm in the presence of a real disciple, not of me, but of the Lord, if I turn the conversation to spiritual things, does it suddenly get quiet or is it suddenly animated Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that Mm -hmm. wasn't before? And that to me, you know, is how well are we making disciples? is that I would rather talk about the things of the Gospel of Matthew than the latest movie. I don't know the latest movie. I mean, latest mm-hmm. movie I saw was The Sting with Robert Redford. And, That's been a while, uh, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm off. That's no, you're fine. I, you're fine. The thing is, is, you know, that to me, we have too many distractions today. We've got technology and not just talking about our phones and screens and things like that. I mean, there's so much that... I want to be teaching all the time, mm-hmm. as you said, whether it's to my sons or whether you know it's friends in a Bible study or even just out to dinner. It's got to be something that's we're focused on all the time. And we don't have to have a didactic approach like you do in a classroom or I do in a pulpit. It's a question. It's an interchange. It's what's God teaching you. What are you learning? What passage of the Bible is a favorite of yours? Why? I mean, I think we can sometimes overload parents and homeschool moms or whatever were thinking they've got to be, you know, Kevin Zuber or, you know, somebody to teach their kid. They don't. Last thing I want to make a comment on and get your reaction. I find, and I often, when I refer to the Great Commission, I often don't say the word nations. I say, make disciples of all ethnos. 
and it wasn't something super intentional knowing what we were going to be in in our current day and culture. But I find it striking that the church, you know, we should be of all people leading racial reconciliation, that there is no racial differentiation or distinction or superiority. Jesus said, make disciples of all ethnos. And that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. You'll be a blessing to the world. You know, we of all people should be able to smile at this whole, you know, division in our country and say, hey, we have an answer for this. Yeah, exactly. We have an answer. And it's not going to be found in policies or reparations or money or Democrat or Republican. It's going to be found in, do you know who Jesus is? Yeah, right. And that, again, there's where I'm, I hear, I know what's going on in the greater culture. I mean, I'm sometimes, I think about wider issues. I've done a lot of short-term missions. I've made maybe 20 trips, over 20 trips to Southeast Asia. I've been to, as you have, I'm sure, you know, South America, Africa, places like this. I mean, what I discover is, is that, you know, outside of the tension-filled, you know, politically charged question about, you know, people groups or nations or pigmentation or however you want to put it, that we feel is that I have over and over again felt, look, when I go to these other places, that's not even an issue. I'm a brother in Christ. I'm in Christ with these people. Mm -hmm. That's the kingdom focus again. That's where we have to keep that focus. And in the body of Christ, of course, in the church, we, as you said, ought to be of all people, we should be the ones sort of leading the way. But the problem is we're not going to lead the way Republican or Democrat. We're not going to be leading the way one way or the other, according to the current sort of discussion. We're going to be leading the way as there's another way that you're not even aware of where it's all lives in Christ matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you're going to get way. in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that could, that could get you into trouble. Amen. Right? Dr. Kevin Zuber, professor, pastor, academic, father, friend in the gospel. I pray for your ministry at Master Seminary and beyond. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. It's been great to have you on the broadcast. Thank you, Michael. I've enjoyed it very much. It's good to reconnect at least a little bit here. Blessings. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hole, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.